0: Chapter 29 of Memories and Adventures This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A Fine Voice. Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 29 Experiences on the Italian Front. The Polite Front. Udini. Under Fire. Carnic Alps, Italian Iridente, Trentino, the voice of the Holy Roman Empire. Two days later I found myself, after an uneventful journey, at Padua, on my way to the Italian Front. The Italian Front seemed to have politely come back to meet me, for I was awakened in the night by a tremendous dropping of bombs with the rattle of anti-aircraft guns. I thought I was as safe in bed as anywhere, and so it proved little damage was done, but Padua and the other Italian cities were having a bad time, and it was a one-sided arrangement, since the Italians can do nothing without injuring their own kith and kin across the border. This dropping of explosives, on the chance of hitting one soldier among fifty victims, was surely the most monstrous development of the whole war, and was altogether German in its origin. If international law cannot now stamp it out, The next war will send the people flying to the caves and calling upon the mountains to cover them even as was foretold i arrived at last at udine the capital of the friulian province where were the italian headquarters a funny little town with a huge mound in the centre which looked too big to be artificial but was said to have been thrown up by a tiller my recommendation was to the british mission which was headed by brigadier general delm radcliffe a bluff, short-spoken and masterful British soldier, who received me with hospitality. The mission owned a white house on the edge of the town. On the second floor, under a window which proved to be that of my bedroom, there was a long dark smear on the whitewashed wall. "'That's the stomach of a baker,' said the soldier-servant with a grin. I thought it was a joke on his part, but it was literally true, for a bomb, a few days before, had blown the man to bits as he passed the house.' and had plastered bits of him on the stonework the ceiling of my bedroom was full of holes from that or some other explosion there was some tendency at this time to cavil at the italians and to wonder why they did not make more impression upon the austrians as a matter of fact they were faced by the same barbed wire and machine-gun problem which had held up everyone else i soon saw when i was allowed next morning to get to the front that the conditions were very like those of flanders in a more genial climate and in all ways less aggravated. I had been handed over to the Italian intelligence people, who were represented by a charmingly affable nobleman, Colonel the Marquis Barbaricci and Colonel Claricetti. These two introduced me at once to General Porro, chief of the staff, a brown wrinkled walnut-faced warrior who showed me some plans and did what he could to be helpful. It was about a seven miles drive from Udini before we reached the nearest point of the trenches. From a mound, an extraordinary view could be got of the Austrian position, the general curve of both lines being marked, as in Flanders, by the sausage balloons which floated behind them. The Isonzo, which had been so bravely carried by the Italians, lay in front of me, a clear blue river, as broad as the Thames at Hampton Court. In a hollow to my left were the roofs of Gorizia, the town which the Italians were endeavouring to take. A long desolate ridge, the Carso, extended to the south of the town, and stretched down nearly to the sea. The crest was held by the Austrians, and the Italian trenches had been pushed within fifty yards of them. A lively bombardment was going on from either side, but so far as the infantry went, there was none of that constant malignant petty warfare with which we were familiar in Flanders. I was anxious to see the Italian trenches in order to compare them with our British methods, but save for the support and communications trenches, I was courteously but firmly warned off. Having got this general view of the position, I was anxious in the afternoon to visit Mont Falcone, which is the small dockyard captured from the Austrians on the Adriatic. My kind Italian officer guides did not recommend the trip, as it was part of their great hospitality to shield their guest from any part of that danger which they were always ready to incur themselves. The only road to Montfalcone ran close to the Austrian position at the village of Ronchi, and afterwards kept parallel to it for some miles. I was told that it was only on odd days that the Austrian guns were active in this particular section, so determined to trust to luck that this might not be one of them. It proved, however, to be one of the worst on record, and we were not destined to see the dockyard to which we started the civilian cuts a ridiculous figure when he enlarges upon small adventures which may come his way-adventures which the soldier endures in silence as part of his everyday life on this occasion however the episode was all our own and had a sporting flavour in it which made it dramatic i know now the feeling of tense expectation with which the driven grouse whirs onwards towards the butt i have been behind the butt before now and it is only poetic justice that I should see the matter from the other point of view. As we approached Ronchi, we could see shrapnel breaking over the road in front of us, but we had not yet realised that it was precisely for vehicles that the Austrians were waiting, and that they had the range marked down to a yard. We went down the road all out at a steady fifty miles an hour. The village was near, and it seemed that we had got past the place of danger. We had in fact just reached it. At this moment there was a noise as if the whole four tyres had gone simultaneously, a most terrific bang in our very ears, merging into a second sound like a reverberating blow upon an enormous gong. As I glanced up I saw three clouds immediately above my head, two of them white and the other of a rusty red. The air was full of flying metal, and the road, as we were told afterwards by an observer, was all churned up by it. The metal base of one of the shells was found plumb in the middle of the road, just where our motor had been. It was our pace that saved us. The motor was an open one, and the three shells burst, according to one of my Italian companions, who was himself an artillery officer, about ten metres above our heads. They threw forward, however, and we, travelling at so great a pace, shot from under. Before they could get in another, we had swung round the curve, and under the lee of a house, the good colonel wrung my hand in silence they were both distressed these good soldiers under the impression that they had led me into danger as a matter of fact it was i who owed them an apology since they had enough risks in the way of business without taking others in order to gratify the whim of a visitor our difficulties were by no means over we found an ambulance lorry and a little group of infantry huddled under the same shelter with the expression of people who had been caught in the rain The road beyond was under heavy fire, as well as that by which we had come. Had the Ostroboshes dropped a high explosive upon us, they would have had a good mixed bag. But apparently they were only out for fancy shooting, and disdained a sitter. Presently there came a lull, and the lorry moved on. But we soon heard a burst of firing, which showed that they were after it. My companions had decided that it was out of the question for us to finish our excursion, we waited for some time, therefore, and were able finally to make our retreat on foot, being joined later by the car. So ended my visit to Monfalcone, the place I did not reach. I hear that two ten thousand ton steamers were left on the stocks there by the Austrians, but were disabled before they retired. Their cabin basins and other fittings were adorning the Italian dugouts. My second day was devoted to a view of the Italian mountain warfare in the Carnic Alps. Besides the two great fronts, one of defence, Trentino, and one of offence, Isuzo, there were very many smaller valleys which had to be guarded. The total frontier line is over 400 miles, and it had all to be held against raids, if not invasions. It was a most picturesque business. Far up in the Roccalana valley I found the Alpini outposts, backed by artillery, which had been brought into the most wonderful positions. They had taken eight-inch guns where a tourist could hardly take his knapsack. Neither side could ever make serious progress, but there were continual duels, gun against gun, or Alpini against Jäger. In a little wayside house was the brigade headquarters, and here I was entertained to lunch. It was a scene that I shall remember. They drank to England. I raised my glass to Italia Iridente. Might it soon be Ridenta? they all sprang to their feet and the circle of dark faces flashed into flame they keep their souls and emotions these people i trust that ours may not become atrophied by self-suppression the last day spent on the italian front was in the trentino from verona a motor drive of about twenty-five miles takes one up the valley of the adige and past a place of evil augury for the austrians the field of Rivoli. finally after a long drive of winding gradients always beside the Adige, we reached Allah where we interviewed the commander of the sector, a man who has done splendid work during the recent fighting. By all means you can see my front, but no motor-car, please. It draws fire, and others may be hit besides you. We proceeded on foot, therefore, along a valley which branched at the end into two passes. In both, very active fighting had been going on, and as we came up the guns were baying merrily, waking up most extraordinary echoes in the hills. It was difficult to believe that it was not thunder. There was one terrible voice that broke out from time to time in the mountains, the angry voice of the Holy Roman Empire. When it came, all other sounds died down into nothing. It was, so I was told, the gun, the vast 42-centimetre giant which brought down the pride of Liège and Namur. The Austrians had brought one or more from Innsbruck. The Italians assure me, however, as we have ourselves discovered, that in trench work, beyond a certain point, the size of the guns makes little matter. We passed a burst dugout by the roadside, where a tragedy had occurred recently, for eight medical officers were killed in it by a single shell. There was no particular danger in the valley, however, and the aimed fire was all going across us to the fighting lines in the two passes above us. That to the right, the valley of Buello has seen some of the worst of the fighting. These two passes form the Italian left wing, which has held firm all through. So has the right wing. It is only the centre which has been pushed in by the contrated fire. When we arrived at the spot where the two valleys forked, we were halted, and were not permitted to advance to the front trenches, which lay upon the crests above us. They were about 1,000 yards between the adversaries, I have seen types of some of the Bosnian and Croatian prisoners, men of poor physique and intelligence, but the Italians speak with chivalrous praise of the bravery of the Hungarians and of the Austrian Jäger. Some of their proceedings disgusted them, however, and especially the fact that they used Russian prisoners to dig trenches under fire. There is no doubt of this, as some of the men were recaptured and were sent on to join their comrades in France On the whole, however, it may be said that in the Austro-Italian war there was nothing which corresponded with the extreme bitterness of our Western conflict. The presence or absence of the Hun makes all the difference. It was a moment of depression at the Trentino front as there had been a setback. I may flatter myself when I think that even one solitary figure in a British uniform striding about them was good at that particular time to their eyes. They read of allies but they never saw any. If they had, we might have been spared the subsequent disaster at Caporetto. Certainly I was heartily welcomed there, and surrounded all the time by great mobs of soldiers, who imagined, I suppose, that I was some one of importance. That night found me back at Verona, and next morning I was on my way to Paris with sheaves of notes about the Italian soldiers which would, I hoped, make the British public more sympathetic towards them. I was told afterwards by the Foreign Office that my mission had been an unmixed success. I have one other association with the Italian front, which I may include here. It is embalmed in the annals of the Psychic Research Society. I have several times in my life awakened from sleep with some strong impressions of knowledge gained still lingering in my brain. In one case, for example, I got the strange name Nalderu so vividly that I wrote it down between two stretches of insensibility and found it on the outside of my cheque book next morning a month later i started for australia in the SS naldera of which i had then never heard in this particular italian instance i got the word piave absolutely ringing in my head i knew it as a river some seventy miles to the rear of the italian front and quite unconnected with the war none the less the impression was so strong that i wrote the incident down and had it signed by two witnesses months passed and the italian battle line was rolled back to the piave which became a familiar word some said it would go back further i was sure it would not i argued that if the abnormal forces whatever they may be had taken such pains to impress the matter upon me it must needs be good news which they were conveying since i had needed cheering at the time therefore i felt sure that some great victory and the turning point of the war would come on the piave so sure was i that i wrote to my friend mr lacon watson who was on the italian front and the incident got into the italian press it could have nothing but a good effect upon their morale finally it is a matter of history how completely my impression was justified and how the most shattering victory of the whole war was gained at that very spot There is the fact, amply proved by documents and beyond all possible coincidence, as to the explanation, some may say that our own subconscious self has power of foresight. If so, it is a singularly dead instinct, seldom or never used. Others may say that our dead can see further than we, and try when we are asleep and in spiritual touch with us, to give us knowledge and consolation. The latter is my own solution of the mystery. End of chapter 29